Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And my guest today is Donald Richard Ort. He's a professor at uh, Illinois University. And we're going to talk about uh, genetic improvement of crops. So, Donald, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yeah. Well, tell me, so what is your department about, first of all, and then what does your specific research entail? Well, um, I'm a faculty member in the Department of Plant Biology and also in um, crop sciences. Um, and these two departments um, are engaged in a range of research, um, you know, from ecology through to uh, systematics and taxonomy, uh, physiology and to genomics. My particular area of research and my expertise is in the area of photosynthesis. And um, a significant part of my research program is to work on re-engineering photosynthesis to um, be adapted for um, global climate change, as well as to um, improve the efficiency of photosynthesis um, in um, agricultural situations. Well, I guess, you know, I've taken biology in college and all that, but legend has it photosynthesis is like super complicated and has hundreds of reactions. Is that the case? Or, you know, what can you tell uh, the layperson about it that, that's impressive? Yeah, and so... seems to be very impressive. And so the process um, from the absorption of light to the synthesis of uh, sugar is pretty complicated. It contains about um, 180 processes or reactions. Um, the thing about photosynthesis is that um, it's the best understood process in um, all of plant biology. And so we understand who all the players are, um, all the enzymes that are involved and all the reactions that are involved. We also understand a great deal about the regulation of those enzymes. And so what this allows us to do is to create um, in silico models. And so we can take every one of those 170 processes and model it in a computer. And um, and these are mechanistic models in the sense that um, we can put in kinetic information to really simulate what's going to happen. And what's powerful about these models is we can then begin to ask questions um, if we want to optimize photosynthesis for a particular situation, say the increase in the CO2 concentration that's already in the atmosphere, we can then begin to query these models and ask, um, what are the kinds of things that we would change in order to optimize it? And, you know, as you already observed, this is incredibly complex and that makes it unintuitive. And so uh, it's unintuitive that if you change this, um, what that's going to do with the level of the plant in the field and um, how that's going to impact yield. And so these models um, are able to identify targets for us. And once we once those targets are identified, then we can un go in and do the biology, go in and do the genetic engineering um, and see if the model's right. And, and, right. Uh, and often it is. Well, I don't know if this is true or not. I've spoken to a few people that deal with photosynthesis 
I had heard, I don't know, maybe I'm mistaken, but the average photosynthetic efficiency of most plants is what, 1%? And the superstars of the world are what, 3%? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit, um, uh, it's a little misleading from the, from the standpoint that if you start with the sol- the entire solar spectrum, um, about 50% of that is outside of the visible range, outside of the range that we can see. Um, and and plants can't use that light either. And so, you know, 50% of it's thrown away right away. And so okay. if you redo the, if you redo that calculation based on the photosynthetically active radiation, which is the visible spectrum, um, you can double all those numbers. Um, but yes, that's true that um, on average for a plant in the field, it's converting on the order of 1% of solar energy into carbohydrate or 2% of visible, visible light energy into carbohydrate. And there's lots cool. of reasons for that. Okay, okay. go on. Yeah, what's interesting, a couple of things came to mind as you were talking. So you said now we, we understand all the reactions that are going on. So mm-hmm. question one, can we do photosynthesis without a plant's help? Can we do it in the lab? You know, and if not, what's missing to be able to do that? And then, you know, I know you have your optimization work next. but mm-hmm. Well, there certainly is efforts to do um, artificial photosynthesis. And some of this is um, done by uh, what's called biomimicry, and that is um, trying to mimic how the biology does photosynthesis. And then there's another effort in artificial photosynthesis to, um, you know, really design completely new ways to capture light energy and convert it into either an ener- another kind of energy that's usable or a compound that's usable. Um, you know, the the fact that we understand the reactions and um, how the uh, particular enzymes work doesn't mean that we can recreate them. And so some of the complexes within photosynthesis that do the real magic, uh, the you know the initial conversion of light energy um, into um, you know what's called a charge separation. Um, these are very complex solid state uh, multi subunit proteins um, that. You know, we know the complete crystal structure of now um, at the atomic mm-hmm. level, um, and you can manipulate them. But it turns out that uh, they're extremely sensitive to structure, and so even small amino acid changes, you know, the vast majority of these don't improve. Um, they they they're to the detriment of the efficiency. And so re-engineering right. some of these complexes, you know, doesn't mean it's never going to happen, but it's been unsuccessful mm-hmm. so far. And you're looking to optimize the process. Um, the other thing that came to mind is how many different wavelengths of light are the are the candidates for use in photosynthesis, and are there higher energy uh, parts of the spectrum that could be used to do a photosynthesis that, again, has a different input? A yeah, and so input. as I mentioned earlier, it's the visible spectrum, and so it goes from the blue, which is about 400 nanometers of a, you know the wavelength, up through the red, up to about 700 nanometers. Um, and so this is the range that we can see. And so below the blue is the ultraviolet, um, ultraviolet B and ultraviolet A. Um, the energy in this part of the spectrum is fairly low um, because a lot of it gets filtered out in the stratosphere. Um, and then above that, above 700, um, you know, there's there's all of the infrared. And, um, and so there's a lot of energy out there, but the energy per photon 
um, is fairly low. And so much beyond 700 nanometers, there isn't enough energy in a photon um, to carry out the basic reactions of photosynthesis. So what does it tell you that nature has settled in on the wavelengths that are in use right now? Do you think it's found a sweet spot? Or uh, well, I think mean, there's a lot of room for optimization? I mean, I think that that's a really good question. And so, you know, whereas I just told you that photosynthesis only operates from 400 to 700, that's true of plant photosynthesis. Um, and those are, you know, that's sometimes called oxygenic photosynthesis. So um, those that have the ability to uh, oxidize water to make oxygen. And and so that's, you know, that's where the system gets um, the reducing equivalents or the electrons um, to, to do uh, net photosynthesis and net carbohydrate synthesis. But there are photosynthetic bacteria that are anoxygenic, and so they're not able to use um, water as an electron donor because they're not energetic enough to oxidize it. And, th and some of those operate out to, they operate in the infrared, some of them out to 850 nanometers. Um, and so, you know, what evolution did in plants was to take two very similar reaction centers, um, one that's able to oxidize water, one that's able to uh, reduce a compound called NAD. And, you know, and together they're able to do the complete reaction of photosynthesis. You know, the thing that, you know, that's not the way you design a solar cell. And so if you ha if you wanted a two-junction solar cell, um, you, you would select um, non-overlapping absorption bands. Um, and so the, the um, you know, in the case of photosynthesis, these two reaction centers, which are like the two uh, band gaps that you have in a solar cell use the same wavelengths of light. And so that automatically divides the efficiency by two. If evolution had taken, you know, the reaction center from plants that's able to oxidize water and coupled it with a reaction center from photosynthetic bacteria that operates in the infrared, you know, then in principle, you'd have a true two band gap solar cell and you wouldn't be dividing the efficiency by two because they're using different parts of the spectrum. Evolution didn't do that, um, you know, but, you know, it is one of the kinds of things that we think about from the standpoint of engineering. Both of these things exist in biology. Is it possible to couple them together into one membrane? You know, well, this, what, go on. what's your overall impression of photosynthesis? Are you, you think that, you know, again, nature did an amazing job and it did the best it could. And there's, you know, tons of room for improvement. Or do you think that it just did a mediocre job and you know, it's, it's low-hanging fruit in order to be able to optimize? Yeah. I mean, I, photosynthesis is an amazing process, and um, you know, and it's it's remarkable it evolved. And of course, if it didn't, there wouldn't be any there wouldn't be any life on the planet because it supports everything. Um, you know, did it do a mediocre job? Well, in the area that it did a mediocre job, I would say is. Uh, one of the major enzymes in photosynthesis is an enzyme called Rubisco, and it's the enzyme that actually captures the CO2, gaseous CO2, out of the atmosphere and puts it onto um, a sugar molecule to make a five-carbon sugar into a six-carbon sugar. And that enzyme evolved, oh, three and a half billion years ago or so, and it evolved in an atmosphere that had no oxygen. And so... Photosynthesis oxygenated the atmosphere, 
and it evolved when it wasn't there. And so once the once the atmosphere was oxygenated, um, you know, lo and behold, the plant discovered or the enzyme discovered that it couldn't really distinguish between CO and two and oxygen very well. And so in our current atmospheres, um, about every third to fourth catalytic turnover of the enzyme, it fixes an oxygen rather than a CO two, and this is actually anti-photosynthesis. Um, and so, you know, this is a situation where I think photosynthesis did a pretty mediocre job. You know, other cases, the things that we're trying to improve are to to adapt photosynthesis to an agricultural situation versus uh, what evolution selected for, which was uh, for good competitors. And so, if you're a good competitor and you uh, and the, you know you want to exist into future generations, what you'd like to do is to sequester as many of the resources that are available, whether you can use them efficiently or not, um, in order to keep them from your competitors. And so, for examples, trees grow tall in order to shade out things that are under them. Um, by growing tall, they're able to do that. They actually capture more light that they can use efficiently. Um, and they'll only grow as tall as they can to the point where putting on all that additional non-photosynthetic material is a lesser cost than, um, you know, than competing with the other kinds of plants. And so an example of this is that, um, as you know, leaves are very green and a single leaf absorbs approximately 90, 90% of the solar radiation that's available to it. And so if you think about, uh, a forest, you know, then those trees are very effectively competing out everything that's below them. Um, but the paradox is that those leaves at the top of the forest or the top of a soybean canopy or the top of a wheat canopy, um, they are getting about five times more light energy than they can actually use for photosynthesis. Um, and the, the paradox is that one leaf layer down, those leaves are light starved. And so what we'd like in an agricultural field is not good competitors. We'd like good neighbors. And so rather than having uh, soybean leaves that are absorbing 90% of the light at the top of the canopy and then having all the leaves in the canopy below that being light starved, we'd really like a situation where there's more light penetrating into the canopy where it can be used more efficiently. And so one of the things that we're working on is to change that. And so you can change that in a canopy by either changing uh, leaf architecture, uh, changing the position of the leaf or the uh, or the the shape of the leaf so more light gets into the canopy, or uh, to lower the total amount of chlorophyll. And so we're engineering plants uh, with much less chlorophyll. Our models suggest that we would get the highest light use efficiency if uh, the chlorophyll content of leaves were reduced by 70%. So that's a lot. Um, and so we have soybean plants now and, and rice plants now that, uh, you know, look like houseplants and they're, and they're quite light green. And so it's the, you know, it's kind of the thing that a farmer would hate because to farmers and crop breeders, you know, light green means a sick plant. And usually it is a sick plant because it's, you know, it's not able to metabolize nitrogen for some reason, or there's lots of, there's lots of bad reasons to be light green. But what we've well, done is... Um, 
reducing the chlorophyll improve the efficiency? What, what the yeah, and, and so and so imagine that we have uh, a soybean plant, and let's say it has five leaf layers, and so the top leaf layer gets ninety percent of light, um, right. and and it's four times more than it can use. The next leaf layer down gets ten percent, and it's light starved. The one below that gets one percent. Um, it's barely doing photosynthesis, and the one below that gets a tenth of one percent, and it's actually uh, doing more respiration than it is photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Now let's take the situation at the top of the canopy that that the leaf only absorbs thirty percent of the light. So that one's light saturated. The next leaf layer down is light saturated. The next leaf layer down is not light saturated, but it's doing significant photosynthesis, and even the fourth and fifth layer are doing significant photosynthesis. And so that plant would oh, not okay. be a so that plant would not be a good competitor. You know, if you put it with full green plants, it would lose out. You know, but in a right. but in a monoculture where everybody's like that, it's going to maximize light use efficiency across the field. But that says the light passes through the leaf if it's not captured. I thought it. Just, I, I guess I just thought you know that it gets blocked by it. So if it if it doesn't capture it at that point, it's lost anyway. Um, and so there's three fates of light. It it can either be absorbed. It can be reflected, or it can be transmitted. And so, if we lower if we lower the absorption from 90% to 30%, then there's going to be more transmission deeper into the canopy to give another leaf. And there's also going to be more reflection. And so, there will be some loss of available light being reflected out of the canopy. And so, our modeling suggests that there is a sweet spot, and that sweet spot is about a 70% reduction. So there is a caveat to this, and the caveat is that, you know, while light green is, you know, is good mid-season, you know, when you have a thick canopy, it's not good, you know, early in the season. And so early in the season, if the plant is light green and it lets light through, is all it does is hit the soil, you know, and it's lost. And so, you know, our models suggest that what we'd like is to have full green earlier in the season. And then as the canopy builds up, at the top of the canopy get light, gets lighter and lighter green. Um, and so right now, we're just making it light green throughout its life cycle. But certainly there's the potential to engineer it in a way that um, we turn on the light green trait later in development. As I was going to say, can, are there any epigenetic triggers that would change the amount of chlorophyll in a leaf over time? And could those be accomplished by, you know, exposing the plants to a certain kind of light, you know, changing their light cycle. I mean, I don't know, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so, and so I don't think they'd be epigenetic, they'd be genetic. And so there are various kinds of um, promoters that respond to different colors of light. And so plants respond to, um, to shade and, you know, and so when they're, when they're in shade, they tend to elongate. And so you get this very, elongated phenotype. And that's controlled by the ratio of red to far red. And so it's the phytochrome response. Um, and so, um, you know, certainly one of the things we're thinking about is co-opting that phytochrome response. Um, because as um, as you go down further and further in the canopy, the red to far red ratio changes because you're, you're taking out more of the red and it's getting enriched in far red. And so... Um, you know, and so the possibility would be then to co-opt that to uh, to change chlorophyll concentration um, as a function of depth in the canopy. 
there's a couple of other promoters that hmm. uh, that are you know that also detect light, but they detect the intensity of light rather than the color of the light. And so yeah, there's they're, probably they're, people that are that are working on mechanical ways, you know, to uh, like you said to have the leaves uh, appear at you know different angles, uh, you know, so as not to obscure each other. Yeah, I know indoor you can control conditions a lot more than you know than outdoor, but um, you're yeah. focusing on the genetic engineering of the plants to make these changes and not other changes. Well, and so in, in the case of leaf angle, particularly in the grasses, there's quite a bit known genetically about what determines leaf angle. And so, you know, if you look at modern maize crops and modern rice crops, they have a much um, more upright leaf angle than did you know did those crops you know, three or four decades ago, you know, much less their non-crop progenitors. And and so breeders have selected for this this more uh, upright leaf angle in grasses. And so that improves light penetration in the canopy and prevents some of the shading. The other thing that's happened, however, is that it's also given the opportunity to plant at high densities. Um, and so what's happened with maize is that as the architectures changed, They've been able to plant higher and higher densities, and um, and so this is what's really driving yield gain in maize over the last couple of decades. Um, and so while it created the opportunity to get more light in the canopy, um, a lot of that benefit was taken away, um, you know, by planting at higher densities, which also had a big benefit. Um, you mentioned uh, at the surface of the leaf where it absorbs the light. You know, and it absorbs CO2. That's where the photosynthesis, you know, I guess, essentially begins when the inputs come in. You said every what third or fourth? Um, I forget what you call it. Every third or fourth cycle. Every uh, every third or fourth catalytic turner or the enzyme reversal. Yeah. yeah. So it'll take in oxygen instead. Well, what's happening um, at the leaf itself? I thought the underside of the leaf. I guess the stomata open and they release what? Like what else is happening in the in the vicinity of the leaf as photosynthesis is occurring? Yeah, um, good question. Let me clarify one other thing first, and that is that this oxygenation reaction happens in plants like soybean and wheat and, um, um, and what we call C3 plants, but it doesn't happen in corn. And so corn has the ability to concentrate CO2 around um, the rubisco enzyme and in so doing prevent the oxygenation reaction. And so it doesn't do it, but concentrating that CO2 around the enzyme um, also costs energy. Um, but the corn and sugarcane and sorghum, which are the three um, crops that are able to do this, are more efficient than the rest of the crops because they don't do this oxygenation reaction. Okay. Back to your so question. What do the C3? Right. What happens there? So back to your question about the C3. And so... Um, you know, depending on the plant, they can have stomates on the bottom of the leaf, the top of the leaf, or both bottom and top. And so most crop plants have, they're either under the leaf or on both sides of the leaf. And and the leaf is, is covered with wax. Um, and so the only way that there is significant gas exchange, whether it's CO2 or oxygen or water vapor in and out of the leaf is through these stomatal pores. Um, and so these pores are necessary to allow CO2 to get into the leaf, um, but at the same time CO2 is getting into the leaf, uh, water is being lost from the leaf. And so, you know, typically that that's a huge imbalance. And so in a soybean plant, 
you the the plant gains about one CO2 molecule for every 500 molecules of water that it's lost. Um, and so wow. it, it's a yeah. And so that's an exchange that's um, you know where you're giving up a lot of water to take up a lot of CO2. It's important to right. understand how. It's important to understand, however, that that evaporation of that water from the leaf is part of what cools the leaf. And so remember, it's it's getting it's taking in a lot of light energy, and a lot of that light energy is heating the leaf. And so the leaf does need to cool, and this evaporative cooling by this water loss is part of the way that it does it. Mm. Okay, got it. Um, all right. So you're looking to modulate again the uh, the percentage of chlorophyll in leaves so that more of the right light is transmitted through to the lower leaves. What about uh, changing the uh, CO2 concentration locally? Is that even possible, you know, and outside, or only it can only be done indoors? Well, um, um, I'm not. Sure. And so, are you saying changing the CO2 concentration within the leaf, or or outside uh, the leaf? Uh, outside the leaf, just locally. Yeah. Is there any way that you can do that in an outside environment uh, where you well, increase the yeah. CO2 concentration locally? Um, unfortunately, it's happening, um, and so you know our crop plants evolved in an atmosphere that had about 220 parts per million CO2. Um, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, about 150 years ago, the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere was about 270, and um, over that time, to 150 years ago until today, it's gone from 270 to about 4 405, and so this is driven by you know largely. Uh, the combustion of fossil fuels. And so the CO2 concentration is going up in the atmosphere, and that in and of itself is a good thing for photosynthesis because it's stimulating the rate of photosynthesis and repressing the rate of this oxygenation reaction. Um, but as you're well aware, there are other consequences to CO2 going up in the atmosphere because it's the major greenhouse gas that's in the atmosphere. And so it's driving warming in the atmosphere um, about... Um, Two degrees on in you know across terrestrial regions of the world compared to the beginning of the industrial revolution, you know, and the projections of the um, intergovernment panel on climate change, you know, is predicting three degrees by mid-century and as much as five degrees by the end of this century, and so that has you know lots and lots of consequences, um, most of which are um, not good for agricultural production. Well, what what happens? Um when plants are exposed to higher CO2 levels. I know I've seen articles on this in the past. I just can't recall at this time, but, you know, what have yeah. you observed and is there any way to, uh, you know, to help accomplish that in an outside environment somehow? Maybe using, I, I don't know, maybe scrubbing CO2 from the air and then uh, blowing it through a field where it yeah. would temporarily raise the CO2 level and then it would go back out into the atmosphere anyway. Well, and so um, I, I think that, the uh, thing that we're thinking about more is how do we raise, for a, for a given atmospheric CO2 concentration, how do we raise the CO2 concentration around the enzyme Rubisco within the leaf? Because that's that's what we you know that's what we can actually potentially control. And so because oxygen and CO2 are competitive for the catalytic site of the enzyme, we can raise the CO2 concentration. Um, and repress the oxygenation reaction plus stimulate the car carboxylation reaction. And so I already mentioned that C4 plants like corn do this by uh, concentrating CO2 um, around the enzyme 
um, by a very complicated mechanism that includes a, a big uh, anatomical and morphological change in the leaf. Um, but there are other ways to concentrate CO2 that nature has discovered. And so in photosynthetic bacteria, um, both oxygenic and non-oxygenic ones, um, a lot of them have uh, bicarbonate and CO2 transporters. And so they can transport CO2 into the leaf and, and concentrate it around the enzyme. Um, the um, cyanobacteria, these are the bacteria that actually um, are oxygenic. They have structures, microcompartments that are called carboxysomes. And these inside these carboxysomes, which are uh, um, all of the all of the rubisco is housed, and so they have they have bicarbonate transporters that transport CO2 or transport bicarbonate um, out of the uh, water, and so these are these are aqueous environments um, into the carboxysomes. In the carboxysome, along with the rubisco, is uh, carbonic anhydrase that converts the bicarbonate into uh, CO2. And it's right then, uh, right in the region of, of the uh, Rubisco enzyme. And so this is very effective in cyanobacteria uh, to prevent this oxygenation reaction and to stimulate photosynthesis. And so part of our project, and so we have this multi-institutional project to re-engineer photosynthesis. And one of our partners at Australian National University um, is um, in the process of um, putting these carboxysome structures into higher plant chloroplasts. And they've been able now to get the structure in, form these microcompartments, and the microcompartments have the CO2 inside, or have the rubisco inside of them. Um, now they're um, trying to put the carbonic anhydrase in with it. What they have not yet been successful for, with is to put the bicarbonate transporters in. We thought this would be the easy part. Um, and while they can get the carbonic or they can get the bicarbonate transporters into the membrane um, for reasons that are not understood at this time, they're not active. And so we have to figure out um, how to activate them. And so it's interesting, right. you know, because, because these cyanobacteria um, are the progenitors of the chloroplast and higher plants. And so um, yeah, supposedly well. that's what happened. It was like a symbiogenesis where the you know the blue yeah. green algae merged with the plant cell, and that's what became the chloroplast. Yeah, and so one of the questions is, did that happen, you know, prior to cyanobacteria having these carboxysomes, or did they have the carboxysomes that moved into plants and then they lost them for some reason? Um, hmm. It looks like the phylogenetic record suggests that the uh, the endosymbiosis of the uh, cyanobacteria into the higher plant happened prior to uh, the formation of carboxysomes in these organisms. So it's really attractive because, you know, the modeling suggests that this, you know, this could be over 50% improvement in photosynthetic efficiency if we could get them in and functional in higher plants. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, you've got, I was going to ask you if there's even more ways you're looking at to uh, improve the efficiency, but I get the feeling you have so much work ahead of you just with these uh, these two methods that you know you don't need anymore. Well, well, let me tell you another one that that my group is working on, and so I told you about this oxygenation reaction. And so once this oxygenation reaction occurs, um, it it forms a, a molecule called glycolate, and it's just a two-carbon compound. 
because it's a two carbon instead of a three carbon compound, it can't be put back into photosynthesis. On top of that, uh, it's, uh, it's toxic. And so the plant has to deal with it. And the way the plants deal with it is a process called photorespiration, which is very complicated. Um, it involves three organelles, you know, uh, 25 or 30 reactions, and uses a huge amount of energy. And so one of the things that we're doing um, in our group is trying to engineer a more efficient way to metabolize that glycolate than the native pathway um, does it. And so, for instance, uh, um, uh, E. coli are, have to metabolize glycolate, and they do it with just uh, five gene products, which is five enzymes, and it doesn't use nearly as much energy as the plant pathway. And so what we've done is we've taken that E. coli pathway as well as two other synthetic pathways that we've designed and put those into the chloroplasts um, of higher plants. Um, and then we've also genetically inactivated the um, exporter of the glycolate. And so the glycolate can't get out of the chloroplast into the native pathway and is forced to go through the pathway that we've put in. Um, and and so our model suggested that this would be a more efficient pathway. Um, and, um, and And it turns out to be. And so we've our model crop that we've been doing this in is tobacco, and we've seen as much as forty percent, forty percent gains in um, in biomass grown in the field with these photorespiratory bypasses installed. Um, and so this, in, this is just, and so this work was just accepted um, in Science last week, and so it'll be coming out, you know, sometime in the next few weeks. That's great! Wow. So what's your uh, what are your targets? Um, you know, I spoke to one researcher whose target is to improve the yield of rice. You know, ten uh, percent or so. You know, what what are some big targets that you have that you're looking at through all this research? Well, I mean, I, I think what can be said is that um, photosynthesis is pretty highly conserved, and so there's this dimorphism between C3 and C4, but if you look at C3 plants, they do photosynthesis. Um, they all do it the same way. Um, if you look at C4 plants, they all do it the same way. And so these kinds of things that we are discovering that are working in tobacco should work in, uh, you know, should work in rice and they should work in wheat and they should work in soybean. Um, and so that's the advantage of, you know, this conservation of mechanism. Um, you know, the disadvantage is that there isn't um, much diversity out there for breeders to select for. And so, you know, nearly all of this is going to have to be done by engineering. And so the kinds of things that we're seeing in tobacco right now with biomass increases of, you know, 30 and 40 percent for some of these, um, you know, as these go into food crops, which are more difficult to work with, um, and we start looking at seed yield rather than just, just total biomass, it's undoubtedly going to be the case that, you know, we're not going to be seeing 40% increases in soybean yield. Um, but certainly I think that 20% increases in soybean yield is um, is a viable target. Um, and we think that because, um, you know, we're suppressing this process of photorespiration with these synthetic pathways. If we suppress photorespiration by just growing plants at elevated CO2, um, you know, we do see these 20% increases in seed yield. And so we think doing it genetically versus doing it by increasing CO2 in the atmosphere should give us pretty much the same results. Um, of course, we don't know that until we get into the soybean, but that's what we're doing now. And so we're taking these traits that we've engineered in tobacco 
and we're starting to engineer them into soybean, cowpea, um, and cassava. Well, last last couple of questions. What do you see that uh, climate change is doing anyway to all our plants and our foodstuffs? And uh, you know, what's what's happening now? What's going to happen over the next I don't know ten or twenty years, regardless of what we do? Well, I don't know, regardless of what we're going to do, but um, but certainly the work that we're doing is to adapt plants to um, the climate change that we think is coming. Here at the University of Illinois, we have a global change research facility known as Soyface. We're able to raise the CO2 concentration in the field for the entire growing season to levels projected for 2050, 2060, or 2070. And at the same time, we can change canopy temperatures um, using uh, very well-controlled infrared heaters. And so we can experimentally ask the question, you know, if we just raise the CO2 concentration, what happens? What if we raise the CO2 concentration to the level predicted for 2050 and we raise the temperature to the amount predicted for 2050? And so we can begin to ask these questions. And so CO2 alone, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, really drives yield. Uh, Temperature alone really suppresses yield. And temperature um, by CO2 increasing both of them, um, you know, the temperature pretty much, the elevation in temperature pretty much negates the stimulation that you get from increase in CO2. Um, And so there may be ways to uh, adapt plants to do that. We think that there are, and and so we're working in those candidates. The other thing that's happening with global climate change is you put more energy into the atmosphere, which is, you know, what warming is, um, it changes precipitation patterns. And so for the Midwest, uh, the Corn Belt, you know, which produces 40% of the soybean and 40% of the maize in the world, um, we don't expect much change in total seasonal precipitation. But the amount that occurs during the winter versus during the growing season is going to increase. Um, and the intensity of the rain events is going to increase, which means that the duration between uh, rain events is going to increase as well. And so, you know, it's possible to get, you know, the same 1,200 millimeters of rain and not have it benefit the crop nearly as much because too much of it's outside of the growing season. And even when we get rain events during the growing season, they're spaced far enough apart that we'll have drought between the events. And when the events come, not all that water will be absorbed and we'll have more runoff. And so, you know, there's and so what this says is that, you know, we have to adapt crops, uh, you know, genetically to do things differently. But we'll probably, you know, we certainly have to do management changes as well in terms of when we plant the crops um, and, and how we plant the crops. Um, and, you know, while our research doesn't involve, uh, you know, the mitigation of, um, of climate change by reducing the production of greenhouse gases. You know, that has to be part of the equation if, uh, you know, if we're going to feed 11 billion people in, you know, in 2100, or yeah. even nine and a half billion in 2050. Well, um, we're just about out of time. I, I really appreciate okay. all your knowledge and information. It's, you know, it's really fascinating. There's so much going on, so much to work on, and huge yeah. challenges ahead. Um, yeah, there are huge are challenges. Okay. There are huge challenges. Um, I think many of us working on it are optimistic. I think that there's um, lots of things that we can do. Um, and, you know, as I already said, we're we're working on one part of it. We're working on the adaptation part and 
you know, and we have faith that the people that are working on the mitigation part that those two things together, um, you know, that we will meet this challenge, maybe not in the way that we're envisioning right now, but in, in some fashion that's acceptable to humanity and to the planet. Well, very good. So uh, resources for listeners, how can they find out more or maybe get in touch with the lab, see what you're doing in more detail? Well, um, we have a couple of websites, and so there's a website for um, our project called RIPE, which is an acronym for Realizing Increased Photosynthetic Efficiency, and so you could Google RIPE. And then we also have a website for our uh, global change research facility called SoyFace, um, so soy as in soybean, and, and FACE is an acronym for free air uh, carbon enrichment. And so if you Google SoyFace, um, you will find out what we're doing there. And in both cases, there's a lot of background information and source references and, and contact information. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and spending your time. Thank you. Well, thanks for your interest. Bye. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.